Welcome to Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa, produced by the Toronto Public Library. I'm Randy Boyagoda. In this episode, June Callwood interviews American writer and activist Larry Kramer. And I'm supposed to be dead now, so suddenly I'm getting all this recognition from people important to me, so that's meant a lot. Anyway, I learned how to be a playwright just like I learned how to be everything else, you know, how to write a op-ed piece for the Times or how to, how to, um, I guess what I've learned more to do than be a writer, I wanted to make people think. I wanted to shake them up. I wanted to make them angry, and I've learned how to do that. And I've learned how to make a living at it, which is even, like guess, more remarkable. Let me begin with a confession. I physically braced myself before listening to June Callwood's 2002 interview with writer and activist Larry Kramer. I braced myself because I was expecting yelling from the start and every moment thereafter. That's because the most memorable pictures I've seen of Kramer over his long life in public depict him standing before a crowd, usually at a lectern, yelling. If Robert Frost could memorably write about having a lover's quarrel with the world, Kramer's someone who's been in a knockdown drag out fight with the world, and indeed with his own friends and lovers, for a long time. A colleague once observed that Larry Kramer came into the world screaming. Most of us did, but 85 years later, and even after at least one false news report of his death, he hasn't really stopped. The source of his screaming, his anger, his fighting? The refusal on the part of political leaders in the medical establishment, and above all his fellow gay men, to acknowledge the gravity, the mortal gravity of the AIDS crisis, and change their ways of life before they lost their lives and the lives of many others. Not that Kramer made it easy on people who might be open to hearing him out, well beyond the question of his yelling. In 1978, he published a novel entitled Faggots that took direct aim at the destructiveness of gay sexual culture, openly inspired by breaking up with a longtime lover who was harshly represented in the book. Ten years later, Kramer disputed a doctor's work in response to the AIDS crisis with an open letter published by the activist organization he founded, ACT UP, that was entitled, An Open Letter to Anthony Fauci, An Incompetent Idiot. And here's the thing about Kramer's Molotov cocktail charisma. He later reconciled, with Webster, the lover I'd mentioned earlier, and the two were married in 2013 while Kramer was in a New York intensive care unit. And following that letter to Fauci, the two of them became friends, and Fauci has since credited Kramer's aggressive public advocacy as being crucial to the development and expansion of AIDS research. This is all to say that Larry Kramer has never been an easy person to deal with, and he's never felt the need to go easy on people, whether specific communities or public officials or for that matter, his readers. A playwright and Oscar-nominated screenwriter, Kramer has recently completed a queer retelling of American history in the form of an 896-page historical novel. Oh, by the way, that's Volume 2. Volume 1 came out five years ago, and it should be noted was shorter. It was only 800 pages. Larry Kramer is a big presence with a lot to say, but there's no reason to brace yourself physically, for what you're about to hear. There's no yelling. There's a lot of sarcasm, yes, and mordant humor about himself and lots of other people, but in general his voice is quiet, amused and bemused, now and then lamenting, even plaintive, and at times almost 
almost soothing. His arguments never have been, of course, and that's both because of what he saw in the world around him and his sense of what it took to draw attention to it, and also because, as he notes, he's learned how to make a living by making people angry. That might be true of a lot of people these days, but they're mostly talking heads on television and meme merchants on Twitter. Larry Kramer is an American original for lots of reasons, as you'll see, and he's still with us, against long odds, and apparently thanks to all things turquoise. I got all dressed up. You did too, eh? <laughs> I put on a cashmere sweater. And I know there's a story about all the rings, about the turquoise. Oh, yes. It's, I guess, silly by now. But maybe it's working. It is. <laughs> no question. That's why when I was 22 or 3, just down from Yale, for whatever reason, I went to a fortune teller in New York City, and she said to me, you must always wear something turquoise. It will take care of you. It will look after your health. Will... And I always have. I always was a little more modest in the amount I wore. Uh, maybe just one ring or something. And, and then when well, I... Well, your health has gone through some shocks. You can't count on one the ring sicker being I got, enough. The sicker I got, the more I loaded <laughs> myself up. Yes. And, uh, I, uh, I think I'd probably overdo it, but I've actually cut back a little since, <laughs> since I had the transplant. So. Um, I, I want to talk about that, but let's start with, uh, with faggots. What astonished me about reading that book is how you found a, a publisher in a time when pornography was uh, uh, a very uh, difficult subject for feminists, and they were, uh, in this country, they were stopping stuff at the border. How did you get a publisher? I think it actually was stopped on, on a, a the Canadian way to the border, border here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think so. It was stopped going into England. I remember uh, a copy was sent to um, Thomas Pynchon, and it was it was impounded by British Customs. And I've never met the man, but he evidently made a big stink about it, which I thought was, I mean, about getting his copy, which I thought was nice. Uh, I don't know that it was thought of as pornographic. I think it was just thought of as gay, and, and, um... Oh, come on. The worst... <laughs> I don't think it's pornographic. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't, but this is a, a perspective, because there was a, a newspaper here uh, called Body Politic, gay newspaper. They hated it. They hated it. Oh, I Body was, Politic hated oh, it? I was Tell in, me. I was in Florence with my sister-in-law in... The book, the book wasn't due to come out till October, and I was there with her for, like, the month of August. And I do not know how I got a copy of Body, Body Politic in, in Florence, whether I found it or somebody sent it to me. But I was sitting in this park reading Portrait of a Lady, and then I opened, I opened this just excruciatingly awful review. It was crucifixion. It was just awful. And I'm sitting there, and, I, and the book hasn't even come out, and this person, this gay person whom I didn't know, is telling everybody in the reviews. He literally said, tell everybody you know not to read this book. It was George Whitmore who, who I subsequently came to know, obviously never liked. <laughs> uh, he was a member of the Violet Quill. He, he, he died, unfortunately, but that was my introduction to it. But it wasn't pornographic. I want to get back to that. Well, I'll tell you why I think so. Because I don't want to know why you think no, so. The, the, no, because I was defending Body Politic, which ran an article about certain kind of sexual congress with a closed fist. <laughs> and 
It was charged with the, against the obscenity laws in Canada. And there I am, sweet little old lady in the, in the stand, defending body politics right to speak about sexual congress with a closed fist. So that I just wrote about what I saw and I didn't think of it as as pornographic and I didn't think of it as anything that would make anybody angry. I enjoyed writing the book. It, it made me it made me laugh a lot and it also it's very very much about a it was written for for the dedicatee, David, who was my my lover, David Webster, who, with whom I had just very painfully split up, and it was about my view of the relationship, and it was really saying, "Can't you see it my way?" It was a, I love you very much, and and you went away from me. So it, it ends though, and set with that prophecy, the prophetic <laughs> fear that. Uh, that there will be a price to pay? Well, I don't know that I was that prescient. I just knew that we were going too far. And I, there is a section in there where I said, we're all going to fuck each other to death. But that was, at the time, Years hy before age. hyperbolic. Um, so again, to get back to all my writing is about what I see. It's not until this new book, which I'm working on now, mm -hmm. there's been very little in my writing that's been what you would call, um, for want of a better description, imaginative. It's mm -hmm. all very journalistic, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I saw. This is what I thought of it. And I've always thought of myself not so much as a, as a, quote, artist writer, but as a... You're a realist writer. No, just I'm a, I'm a, I'm a message queen. <laughs> and this is what I think, and, and words are tools for me to to uh, to get a message across. That's why I've been so unwelcome in the in the uh, in the in the in the community of writers or gay writers. I've always been exiled. I cannot tell you how utterly baffled I was when I was invited to come and speak here. I have never ever been invited to a literary anything before. Oh, I'm, you must be never, joking. Never, never. I am, I am a pariah in my country because, because there's no such thing as a, quote, writer, artistic, whatever you want to say, writer, and an activist. That tradition, which is familiar perhaps to us through, you know, German writers like Grass or, or, or Bull or... Uh, Nadine Gordimer. Nadine Gordimer, certainly, or in, and certainly in South American countries. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't exist in America. It's just the reverse. I mean, you think of the great, great, the writers like, you know, John Updike, or, I mean, they wouldn't begin to, to, to say what they think. Even our, even our great playwrights. There, you cannot name a major American writer who has written about AIDS, who has said anything decent about AIDS, Name me one. I'm, I'm talking about straight. Oh, not straight. I, I was thinking of Kushner, of course. Who? Kushner. Yeah, but that Tony's gay as they come, and my best one of my best friends. I don't. But see that's that. also. But that's also. You know, Tony wrote in in the '90s. I'm talking from the beginning. You couldn't get anybody to say dipshit. Mm -hmm. This is going on television. 
Absolutely. Uh, it's going to every daycare center. <laughs> it's going to every daycare center in the country. You write with. <laughs> you write very. Get used to it. What? You you write very um, uh, um, sharp, clean ways. It's uh, it, it isn't easy to mimic it as it is with Hemingway, but it but Thank it you. is but it is the way you write. Is that the product of editing? Do you take away the peacock feathers? Or do you write that, think that way? What do you mean, peacock feathers? Oh, you know. Is that the, like pornography? No, it's like vanity. <laughs> when oh. the writer puts in a lot of curlicues to show how smart he or she is. I have to tell you, I don't know. I came to writing late. Um, I didn't write my first anything important until, I guess, I wrote my, the screenplay to Women in Love, which was... You got an Oscar nomination. Which was, 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 I was late 20s, early 30s, and I didn't really write anything prose until, um, until Faggots, which I started writing in 73, when I was, oh, I can't remember. 73, uh, came out in, yeah, 78. Um, and it's very different when you become a writer so late in terms of, being able to talk about style or why you do certain things. It was very, it's, it's been and has continues to be a very hard job. I enjoy it. I couldn't do anything else, but um, it takes me a very long time to write anything and, um, and to make it please me. I mean, I can write it and know mm -hmm. that it needs, that I'm not happy with it and needs more work. And is it shaving stuff? I guess it is. It's, it's polishing mm -hmm. and walking down the street and remembering or thinking of a better way to make the sentence that you worked on last night. Um, but then most writers yeah. work that way, don't they? Well, and, but you're, you don't do the visuals so much. You, you, you're a, your genre is dialogue. And, uh, mm. and it, but the characters come fully formed out of the dialogue. I, don't, I think that's a hard trick. Well, thank you. Uh, bless you. I always think I should describe more. Uh, yeah, he's tall, he's short. You never know. <laughs> I want to look at these people, but I, I get write, to know them. The right, you, you, you write the way you write, I guess, and mm -hmm. if you're lucky, you get a style. And I think one day I woke up and realized, for better or worse, I had a style. I don't know that yes, I could. Des do. I don't know that I could describe it, but I know it's a voice. And um, you've been across a lot of genres. <laughs> I have. I have written. I'm proud of saying that I've been successful in all of them. Yes. Uh, Anna Quindland had a piece in the New York Times a week or so ago. She said it was the transition from being a journalist to a novelist wasn't hard because both have to pay attention. That struck a, a bell for me. Paying I don't know that I pay attention. <laughs> My lover David said would say I don't. <laughs> um, I live in my head mostly and and there's certain things that make me mad and upset that I want the world to know. So I pay attention to the things that make me upset, which are usually easily locatable in the te on the television and reading mm -hmm. the newspapers, talking to people like you, hearing stories, whatever. So it's not, I'm not a particularly observant person about if I were on, you know, there are all these things they tell you when you're studying writing, go on a bus and, you know, describe everybody who's sitting on it. I don't think I could do that at all. If the bus were in my mind, I could see everybody. 
and, and I'm, I'm not, like I said, I'm not an imaginative writer per se. The new book is the um, American People. American People. It's got a lot of of I hope more description in it, but I think because I was a playwright, whether Writing a play is the hardest thing in the world for me. It's much harder than... People say that. Yeah. Of all the things to do, that that's the worst. And it's yet you started harder. with Normal Heart, which is well, I actually such a did. winner. I started with a play called Sissy Scrapbook, which you've never heard of. And, <laughs> Have uh, I missed something? Well, interestingly enough, I'm sorry the poster isn't here, but Grove is bringing out the most gorgeous edition. It will be out in October. It's called Women in Love and Other Dramatic Writings. And it's got the most gorgeous cover. Um, and it has a wonderful introduction by Frank Rich, uh, who's very important in America. Yes, I know. And um, Grove, in, Grove has today. just been wonderful. They've gotten these incredible introductions to all my books. They got Reynolds Price to do Faggots, and they got Tony Kushner to write that incredible book. He wrote a beauty. Yeah. And suddenly, and I'm supposed to be dead now, so suddenly I'm getting all this recognition from... Are you? People important to me, so that's meant a lot. Anyway, in that book is not only Women in Love, but Sissy Scrapbook, my very first play, and a couple of other plays. Um, I learned how to be a playwright just like I learned how to be everything else, you know, how to write a op-ed piece for the Times or how to... How to um, I guess what I've learned more to do than be a writer, I wanted to make people think. I wanted to shake them up. I wanted to make them angry. And I've learned how to do that. And I've learned how to make a living at it, which is even, I guess, more remarkable. Because I remember once I was invited to the school, Miss, Miss Porter's school in Farmington, Connecticut. Miss Porter's school in our youth was for all the rich kids, girls. And it's now very different. It's, it's filled with with a rainbow of people, colors. All they're still all women, young ladies. A lot of them from people from Africa. A lot of people. A lot of people of color. And they invited me there for one reason, and they grilled the hell out of me. They wanted to know chapter and verse in detail how I made a living with my anger, because they were angry about so many things. And they wanted to know everything. You know, <laughs> they wanted to know the financial stuff and how you got to the New York Times. And, and your brother invested the money for whatever. you. Yeah, that was lucky. <laughs> anyway, I thought that it was a very moving experience. I've always been able to write exactly what I wanted to do. You're that, not afraid of your anger, right? Oh, honey, it took a long time. No, I was never afraid of my anger. No, because I didn't have it. It was, so, it was so submerged. I was afraid to be me. And when I had enough therapy, they put me in touch with that anger. And, and of course, that's a whole different thing in America than I guess you have in Canada, the whole... No, none of us are angry here. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, the Nothing whole thing of therapy. About. No, I mean the whole thing of therapy and yeah. analysis. and It's not so much now, but when I was... In, in the, when I was young, 20s and 30s, it was, that was the thing to do. Was to, to cure you. Supposed to cure to you. To cure you or just to yeah. get in touch with your anger. We, well, yes, we had a, a psychoanalysis. Was he a, no, he was a psychiatrist here. 
Daniel Kaplan. He wrote a book about how he had cured 11 homosexuals. Mm. I, I did the review of it, and I, all that long ago, I, I was a little, that, little I hope skeptical. you called that pornography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'll, um, the thing about anger is if it's, you're, if there's too much of it, people can't hear what you're saying. They heard me. There's no doubt they heard you. <laughs> but you I paid guess a price. I don't, I guess I don't. There's anger and there's anger. I mean, the stuff, all the stuff I wrote, the political stuff, which no one has ever remarked upon, talk about worked on the pro style, talked about, talk about shaving away the feathers and, and going for, for hard-hitting stuff. All that stuff, if you ask me what I think is some of my best writing, I think some of my, my political stuff with, and of course, the Holocaust. And was that the first one that you did? The person the Holocaust is a collection. If this doesn't make you mad, something rather you started it. It was in a game. Sorry. The, the first thing that you did about AIDS, something or other, one thousand one hundred yeah, twelve and counting. Yeah, it's in, that's in this book. It's a collection of my, of my. Um, that's a marvelous piece. It's a collection of all my AIDS writing. Uh, I'm sort of sorry that St. Martin's, the book is still in print, and St. Martin's told me they would have it here with the Grove Press stuff, and I'm sort of annoyed that they haven't. Could have sold a couple of those. <laughs> what was that, what year was that, 81? Well, it had two editions. One is twice as thick as the other one. I don't remember. The second one was late 90s. What I said before, though, about paying the price, it was something that Catherine Hepburn once said, that she's done all her life, whatever she pleased, and paid the price. And well, I mean, you can hardly say she paid. She no, I'm talking about you. You're supposed to have picked up on that. I'm talking <laughs> about you. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I've paid a price. I didn't want to join that club, and the fact that the Violet Quill and Edmund White and all these so-called serious gay writers didn't want me didn't bother me. I didn't want them, but and I still don't. Huh? It would. It bothered you, must have, I'm just projecting here, to be thrown out of gay organizations that you well, started. Well, that was different. That was, you bet. Uh, but it was, it, I was only thrown out of, out of GMAC, and I wasn't really thrown out. I taunted them into throwing me out. <laughs> and it was more complicated than that. But as my friend Roger McFarlane has always said, he thought that my subconscious was saying I had to move on and I was ready to write the normal heart and that's the way I had to do it. So let's use that first. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'd like to get out of going to meetings and therefore I'm going to be obnoxious. No, it was awful. It was very painful afterwards. Of course it was. Yeah. Yeah. I had nothing left to do but write because I had been so busy before. How do you handle being in despair? In despair? Oh, I don't think I've ever been in despair. Uh, I was unhappy, and I yelled at him. I wrote letters to him calling them murderers. That's how I do them. <laughs> Nazis, murderers. Huh? I didn't uh, call them Nazis. I said a kin. I what I said. <laughs> but I was right. 
You, um, you saw the neglect, as many people did, uh, straights as well, the neglect well, of AIDS in the beginning as a, as a kind of genocide. Still and is. What we're beginning to see, I, I think, is uh, the neglect in countries like Africa, the neglect by the Western world, is a kind of genocide again. You're absolutely right. Africa is going to be nothing compared to what's going to happen now in India and China and Pakistan and Indonesia and Russia. The numbers are going to be grotesque. There are reports out now, literally the CIA of all people put out a report talking specifically about India, Pakistan and Russia. No, Pakistan, Russia and China. Sorry, no one pays attention to poor India. India, India I think right now is way surpassed Africa, South Africa, or Africa in general in terms of cases, um, that it's going to ruin the economies of all these countries, which it certainly will. It's the children are orphans. It's a we, country of orphans. It, it, the whole thing is just beyond could Beyond it have been stopped? Could it? Yeah, you know, if we did, it stopped, could have stopped if, we, if, if the people in the beginning had paid attention. Um, you know, till Krim, Dr. Krim. Mm -hmm. um, it said if we had just paid attention in the very beginning to, to she and me, it could have been stopped. If the New York Times had written about it, if, if Ed Koch had... had attended to it as a public health measure in New York. Yes, people would have put on notice much earlier. I mean, Ronald Reagan didn't say AIDS for seven years in office, didn't say the word. And that by then it was already too late. It's too late now. I mean, I, I think, I know everybody's right, it's, it's unfashionable to say that, but, but there's no way that, that these hundreds of millions of people can be saved, none. But you've been HIV positive for maybe 20 years, and so aren't young men um, beginning to think, oh, it's a piece of cake? Isn't that happening? There seem to be more infections among young men than there I have been That's a few another years thing ago. I, cannot, I cannot understand the, the mindset of, of kids who know that what they're doing is endangering their lives. And it's very, been very painful to me because it's as if everybody we fought so hard for who died, died in vain. Um, there's absolutely no memory, no sense of, of community memory of, of, of the hundreds of thousands of gay people who are gone in America. You're it's losing your it, history, aren't you? Well, I, I, um, I don't know if we're losing our history. We're losing some generations, but the, the history will be there. Enough mm -hmm. people are beginning to write about it. Uh, now, this wasn't all about AIDS, but it, uh, but about the state of your liver. <laughs> First of all, Newsweek said that you were dying, and then um, uh, AP said you were dead. Was that a little disconcerting? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> by the time the AP said it, I'd already have. I'd just come out. <laughs> I'd literally just come out of of the operating room. I think I was in intensive care one, one day and was not very compromendous. And David and Roger <laughs> rushed in and said, Newsweek, I mean, the AP has just said you're dead. 
And it sort of looked like this, and I said, well, deal with it. <laughs> Mark Twain had something yeah. else he said, wasn't it? Well, but when Newsweek wrote the article, I was. Um, I only had six months to live. I, was, I had accepted it. I totally had accepted it. The problem with uh, its liver transplant, as maybe most people know, is a liver transplant. The problem is that the drugs that you're taking so that you don't reject the liver are not the best drugs for an HIV-positive person to be taking. So there, there's well, a my war. My case was a little different, but you're right, and it's going to become an enormous... That's the next great... I don't know what you call it, the next great world crisis is the, as people live longer because the, we have the drugs now. Their organs are going to cave in faster, and they're going to be more need, particularly in people with one of the hepatitis as well as as well as HIV for all organs. It's now safe to say, and the doctors in New York are actually saying it, that people with HIV today, with the drugs that are available, can actually expect to live normal lives, which is hey, unheard of. Um, they're milder strains or something, isn't there? No, I just think the drugs have been very... No. Which, are, which our activism has delivered to the world have actually proved to be much more, far more successful than even we dreamed of. And there are enough of them so that if you don't react well to one, there's another one to try. But the hepatitises are a different matter. Uh, hepatitis B, there now are two and soon to be three really excellent drugs that will which will control the hepatitis B. Um, epivir, adefavir, and tenofovir. Mm -hmm. But hepatitis C, which affects far more people around the world and is a very deadly form of hepatitis mm -hmm. and very, very hard to treat, only has several very ineffective drugs right now, although there are more in the pipeline. Your um, long wait for a donor, for a liver donor, um, led you to another cause that in your spare time you're beginning to pick up, have you? I actually was very lucky. I didn't, in retrospect, wait that long. And I'm, I have no idea why. I have been so lucky my entire adult life with this illness. I've never had an opportunistic infection. I've never had... I never took AIDS drugs per se. I never took a protease until I had the, mm -hmm. until I had to after the transplant, which they required. My T cells were always in a, in a fairly normal range. My viral load was always fairly low. And, um, and then one day, I had had hepatitis B for a very long time, but it had been dormant. And this drug, Epivir, suddenly which I had taken for a number of years, suddenly gave out on me. I became resistant to it, and I got very sick. And, and, and that, that's when I really started getting sick. And then, again, luck came my way, and I was told it was this experimental drug. It was still then in trials at Defavir at the NIH, so I had to go to Washington and get this drug every month. And that really brought the, the hepatitis down to manageable levels. And then one day, even though my liver, I was told I delivered whether the hepatitis was active or not, only had about six more months left. And, and like I said... You I were told six months oh, to God, keep yes. Yeah. I was what told did... by more than one person. Dr. Fauci told me, yeah. 
at the NIH and my doctors in New York. And, and if, I, if we knew how, when we might die, what well, does... Well, they can know. They can no, no, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going somewhere else with this. <laughs> um, if, uh, if we knew when we, how, when we were going to die, what would we do for the next six months? If for sure in six months we will be dead, what did you do? Well, I, I accepted it, and it wasn't so long after the Newsweek article came out that I was told that I, would, I might be eligible for a liver transplant. And the minute I heard that, I knew I was going to get that. I knew I was going to get that liver if, if my life depended on it, and indeed it did. And it was, gen again, just sheer luck. They were, they were beginning to transplant what are called co-infecteds, people with HIV and one of the hepatitises. And there was, there was, uh, there were a few hospitals willing to do it. Not many still will do it. And it happened that a couple of very courageous pioneers, in fact, wanted to do it, including the man who transplanted me, Dr. John Fung at the University of Pittsburgh. And he, it had nothing to do with who I was, thank goodness. He didn't, he didn't know, yell at him, though. He didn't know who I was. He had no idea who I was. And you were polite. <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> Uh, and so I was lucky, and I got the transplant, and, and yeah. I'm here to tell you that I've, I have a 45-year-old man's liver, and I feel 45. And he said, Dr. Fung, you are as old as your liver, and I believe it. Uh, tell me, um, if you went back writing this, you've been working for about 100 years on this book, The <laughs> American right. People. Uh, How is it coming? Is, are American you ever going to finish it? Uh, just uh, curiosity. It's 2,000 pages 2,500. long. 2,500. So far. What does your publisher think of that? Goody? Thinks, oh, goody. It'll he, be this big? He thinks it's wonderful. Thank God. <laughs> Only one person, two people read it. David and yeah, uh, oh, my editor, Will Schwalbe. I just mean publishing a book that big. Have you thought of bringing out oh, who two? Who cares? I mean, you find Two parts? Who cares? Whatever the technology is. Who's going to be able to lift it? You'll be able to lift if you want to read it. So to put it, I don't know. It comes out in volumes, whatever. Okay. I've never done the same thing twice in my writing. All my plays are different. The screenplay, mm -hmm. all the essays. I, I don't like to do the same thing twice, which is probably really why I haven't written more plays, because I've done it already. And somehow I wanted to write something really long. I didn't know it would be this long. But technically, it's very interesting. It's a challenge. How do you make people read something that's that long? Technically, how do you keep them going? What a lot makes of you... sex, or, I suppose, that kind of thing. <laughs> Pornography. Yes. <laughs> I hit a nerve there. Well, what it is, is it's about... It's a history of America, and it's a history of how homosexuals have been oppressed in America from day one. And it's a history of disease. It's a history of... AIDS, except it's called the underlying condition. And where did it come from? And I start with literally the monkeys in the Everglades before anything else. And it goes through those thousands of years until today. And it's been fascinating. I've never once 
gotten bored with doing it. Uh, it challenges me. It's very hard to do. My brother, my lover, nobody thinks I'm doing anything because it's taking so long. But I am. I'm a slow writer, as I told you. But it's, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge. It's enormously ambitious and probably too ambitious. And I don't know if I can bring it off. And of course, I didn't think I was going to live to finish it when Dr. Fung asked me why I wanted to live if he gave me a new liver. I said, I want to finish my novel and I want more time with, with David. And now when he sees me, he keeps saying, all right, where's the book? <laughs> As David keeps saying. Do, do you, did you use a researcher? No, I've done it all myself. All yourself? Still, yeah, still. It's got, it still has a ways to go. What happened with your fight with Yale? You, you, you finally oh, reconciled? It you were going to give them a million dollars and they said, no thanks? My brother gave them a million dollars. Um, it turned out wonderfully well. I, I don't know if any... I went to Yale and I wanted... Um, I've been trying for a great many years to get them to teach gay studies, to teach anything gay. And, and um, when I drew up my will many years ago, long before I had any money, I put in that I want all these things that if I had any money, I would give it to, leave it to Yale. This was before David, and uh, if there ever was before David in my life. And, and um, so when I got sick, I called up Yale and I said, um, what do I do? How do I? And they said, well, send us your will. So I sent the will, and you would have thought, again, the, the oh, hell, all the ceiling, I don't know what, they, they couldn't believe it. I was, I was told in no uncertain terms they didn't want my money. Uh, they would not do any of the things I wanted, like get a professor of gay studies, or teach gay studies, or acknowledge gay studies, and they didn't want to separate gay kids from other kids. It was just sort of hateful. And, and the New York Times, for once, picked up, picked up. I had nothing to do with it. Somebody else told them, and they wrote a big story about it. And Yale looked awful, because by then, everybody, every other college in America was teaching, or had some kind of gay, and important university had some kind of gay academic presence. And they looked so foolish. And, and they knew it. And then I'm very close to a classmate of mine. You may know Calvin Trillin. Mm. Um, and, and Calvin was, has, is a, was on the board of, of, the, of the university. And he, he called up the president. And he said, enough is enough. You guys have really got to do something. <laughs> so at that point, my brother said, if they do do something, I will give a million dollars for it. And so... Calvin brokered this whole thing where there's now, and his wife Alice, now unfortunately deceased, gave it its name, the Larry Kramer Initiative for Lesbian and Gay Studies. They wouldn't call it a center, so we, we had to have think tank about what, what we could call it if they wouldn't call it a center. And it's there, and they've hired an incredible man, Jonathan Katz, from the University of uh, San Francisco. And we're up and running. I can't imagine if there's ever before in the history of academia 
that people had to fight in order to give money to a university. More than you know, evidently, um, more than you know. They turned down something like $20 million from one of the basses. Maybe it was $100 million, I don't know, it was a lot, because he tried, they felt he was trying to dictate what he wanted the money spent for, and they got very oh, high and mighty about it. You should try U of T, they'll take anything. <laughs> well, so would anybody else. I cannot tell you, I've got way over 100 letters after the New York Times article from everywhere, Harvard, Princeton, UCLA, Berkeley, <laughs> the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, everywhere, Cornell. Cornell sent me the plans of, of a building they were prepared to build, things like that. So we wound up talking about activism and not at all about literature. We did so talk about literature. You told me how long your book is. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very Larry Kramer was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1935 and graduated from his father's alma mater, Yale, in 1957. He moved to New York following a stint in the Army and thereafter devoted himself to writing plays and screenplays, including the script for the 1969 cinematic adaptation of D.H. Lawrence's novel, Women in Love, for which he received an Academy Award nomination. He went on to write plays and novels, including most notably Faggots, The Normal Heart, and The American People, and he emerged as the most prominent AIDS activist in America during the 1980s, founding the organization ACT UP in 1987. Kramer has received a series of accolades throughout his career and was the first winner of the Larry Kramer Activism Award. His death was reported in 2001, and as of 2020, Kramer's still going, still writing, still talking, and, when necessary, screaming. Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa, is a year-long podcast series that celebrates 40 years of the Toronto International Festival of Authors. It's produced by the Toronto Public Library. The executive producer is Gregory McCormick. This episode was produced by Gregory McCormick and me, Randy Boyagoda, with technical support from George Penayotu and Michelle DeMarco, and marketing support from Tanya Oleksik, and research support from Marcella Van Run. For more about Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa, visit writersoffthepage.ca, where you will find links to the books mentioned in each episode and links to other relevant materials in the TPL's collections. For all of Toronto Public Library's podcast series, check out tpl.ca slash podcasts. Music is by Yuka. I'm Randy Boyagoda, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa. <laughs>